0: Grace and peace to you, and welcome to Reaching for Real Life with Sean O'Zaro, the senior pastor of River City Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. This is a church that exists to help people just like you. Find the real life you were created for, find it to the full. That's what Jesus promised in John 10.10. And today we continue in this series called The Elephant in the Family Room. Today's topic is on raising kids, which can be frustrating and discouraging as a parent, grandparent, or mentor, but it's never too late to lean into God's way of building children. Pastor Sean Azar will share some ideas on what the Bible has to say about being involved in raising awesome kids Reallife.org has this full message sermon notes and series available for free but if you feel led to bless this listener supported radio ministry then please do there's a place to give at Reallife.org the message is called to build a person Pastor Sean is teaching from the book of Genesis it's time for Reaching for Real Life Radio
1: the Bible talks a lot about families, and it is very honest. I want to suggest that what's interesting about the biblical account is that there's no perfect people. It tells you the truth. It tells you some great things about parenting, but it also shows you some things that are not so stellar in the way of parenting. Take a look at Genesis 25, 28. We're talking about Isaac, Abraham's son, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. It's one of their kids. Rebecca loved Jacob, the other. You begin to see this pattern of favoritism. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It was passed on to their son, Jacob who was also called Israel. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. And he made him a richly ornamented robe. His brothers saw that. Their father loved him more than any of them. They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So this family was definitely bruised by this issue of favoritism. Look, at this is King David, a man after God's own heart. We know about some of his family issues. We know about the rebellion of his son, Absalom. What about his second son? Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. Interesting phrase. So he got chariots, horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. He had to look regal. And it's interesting. Look what it says. His father, David, the man after God's own heart. David was an awesome man, but he wasn't perfect. His father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. So we see in Isaac and in Jacob this sense of favoritism. And then in David we see this sense of indulgence and a lack of discipline. And the question is, okay, why? Why do these men who they knew God, they trusted God, why did they make these mistakes? And I want to say this points to one of the most common problems in parenting. And I think it's selfish parenting. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot that in the margin somewhere. Selfish parenting. Think about it. Favoritism is about which child is more pleasing to me, isn't it? Because you have multiple kids, some might be more obedient. Some might connect with you better. Some might reach out to you more. Some might be more attentive to you. That's all about me. Which child is more pleasing to me? Our kids are different, but we're supposed to love them all. doesn't mean we have to be exactly the same towards every kid, because they're not all the same. They're different. But we should love them all. And this issue of favoritism is about which is more pleasing to me. The second indulgence well, indulgence is just easier than discipline. Every parent has known, when you, especially you've got a strong-willed kid who you've told not to, and they keep doing it, and now you've got to discipline again, and you're just like, I'm tired. I'm tired. You know, I'll just look the other way and pretend I didn't see him. Because indulgence is easier than discipline. I want to suggest both of those are about us. I think sometimes our kids, if we're not careful, can become a means to an end. This is one, I'm, I'm, as a pastor of a church... As a pastor of a church, I found myself having to confront this in myself and push it back several different times. And it's that thing of, if my kids behave a certain way, what will people think of me? Our kids are great kids, and we loved our family time when they were in the home, and it was just it was awesome. We had a really good time. But there were times when they became a living example of the Scripture that says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And then, you know, people right away go, oh, my gosh, look at a PK. Oh, we've read about them before. You know, the whole thing. And here's the deal. As a pastor of a church, you're kind of living your life. You're in a community. Everybody knows you. They know your kids. And there's that moment where where your temptation, your challenge is, oh, if my kid did that, what will people think of me? And you got to beat that back. I remember having to say, it's not about me. And I had to resist that temptation and say, I don't care what people think of me. One, I'm not going to put that pressure of my, on my kids. Okay, my self-image isn't about, isn't about what they do. It's not wrapped up in them. My self-image is about how God sees me and my relationship with him. But when they act up or something, it's not about how it impacts me and my image. It's about them, their character, about what are they learning, what's, how's their training going. And that's all it's about. But that I remember at times having to kind of, oh, and then say, no, I can't give in to that. That can't be what it's about. And we all struggle with that kind of stuff, meeting our needs through our children. There's a passage of scripture, we're going to end up in Ephesians in a few minutes, but, but if you have your Bibles, clip real quickly flip over to Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, we see, we see an example of Abraham. And, and look what it said. Remember, Abraham is the father of our faith. God launches this, this family that would become a nation to bring Messiah and bring redemption to all of mankind, right? So beginning of verse 18... We read this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. This is very similar to what we saw in Genesis 12, where God originally gave his promise to Abraham. So you're like, oh, we're tracking with that. Yep, he's going to become a great and powerful nation. Everyone will be blessed through him because of Messiah. We get it. But listen, let me read it in context. Be blessed, And all nations on earth will be blessed for him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. Did you realize his primary call was to raise children, particularly to raise a son? And when it makes perfect sense, understand, God started with a family. That's how God sees the family. He began with a man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, and said, in your family, I'm going to do a work. I'm going to raise up a nation. But that passage points out to us that God's assignment was, I've chosen him so he'll direct his children. And by extension, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who would become so numerous, like the sand on a seashore, they would become a nation. Direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Abraham was chosen because ultimately he would become a good father. He would raise a family that would follow in the ways and experience the blessing of the Lord. We just read a few passages of Scripture. They weren't perfect. They didn't do everything right, but they did trust the Lord. They did follow the Lord, and that's why he was chosen. See, everything God did with Abraham, the father of our faith, God, he believed and it was reckoned to him as as righteousness, all of that. His main job was to raise a family, particularly to raise a son. See, God's plan started with a family, and I want to suggest to you the same is true for every one of our families. You're like, well, yeah, but we're not Abraham or anything. No, no, the family, as we've talked about, is that core unit, whereby God brings people into the world, and whereby people are socialized and raised. God has a powerful and significant assignment for families. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Here it is. The family business is the business of building people. The family business is the business of building people. That's what the family is about. You're going to do lots of important things in life. You really are you're going to do tons of important things, but the most important thing that we've been called to do as parents, those of us who have children, is to raise people who know God, love God and have every chance to become who He created them to be and experience the things He designed for them to experience. That's our assignment. I realized something early on. God really convicted me with this because of being a pastor in ministry, and this is a calling. I love what I get to do, and I think it's important. I hope it makes a difference. But God laid on on my heart early that there's lots of people who could do my job. Lots of people who could get up and could share the word and could teach. Lots of people who could lead this ministry. But there's only one guy in the world who can be a dad to Lauren and Ryan. One guy can be a husband to Lori and a dad to Lauren and Ryan. And that's me. And every one of us, by the way, that's true of you. Your job, you may have a really important job. You may have a job that makes a difference in the world. And I commend you for that. That's awesome. But lots of people could do your job. There's only one person in the world who can be the mom or the dad that God called you to be. And so right away we got to recognize this is the business. The family business is the business of building people. Your first job is not to make money, to make meals or memories. That's not our first job. Our first job is to raise up kids and give the world. Our best gift to the world is well-adjusted, God-fearing, Christ-honoring people who will impact the next generation. Now, if Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. You remember, last week we talked about the marriage relationship. We were in Ephesians 5. Well, Paul goes on, and he has some words for families, the rest of the family, and he starts speaking directly to children. This is interesting. This letter to the church, there's a section that is to the children. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with, uh, with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. That's the promise. Now, notice those concepts. Obedience. Obey your parents. Honor. Honor your father and mother. Respect. Respect. Obedience. Honor. Respect. And one of the things I want to say to you right now, do not expect the culture to help you with this. Really, we, we've got to decide what kind of path we're going to take and understand it is going to be a contrarian path. We are swimming upstream. We are going against the current when it comes to parenting. You see, where the culture is telling you to parents and the things are saying, this is important, this is what you should invest in, this is what will work with your kids, just know what, that's, what they're producing is what we saw in that video. That's what they're producing. And you, we, this isn't a game. These are your children. And when you, because we make decisions all the time, what, who, who are we going to listen to? We're going to listen to the experts or we can going to listen to the Word of God? Because the Word of God lays out one path with words like obedience, honor, respect.
0: And this is when we take a quick minute to remind you, you're listening to Reaching for Real Life with Sean Azaro, a listener-supported ministry of River City Community Church in this message called To Build a Person, which is available right now on the sermon page at reallife.org. And while you're there, if you've been blessed by this teaching, your gift of any amount helps this radio ministry continue to help others. Just find the Give tab at reallife.org. And Pastor Sean Azaro, now an author, invites you to check out his brand new book. This is Reaching for Real Life Radio.
1: Today we want to talk about the elephant of bratty kids. You know what I'm talking about, right? And, and I want to just address real quickly the singles in the room. You may think, oh, God, there's nothing for me in this. I don't have any kids yet, maybe, or, you know, I'm not dealing with that. No, no, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Because singles are the ones who have the hardest time with the bratty kids, okay? Because parents develop this weird kind of noise redu- reduction type of filter, and the kids can be screaming, nah, 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 and the parents don't hear it, so they're talking happily you know, at a restaurant. And the single person is like, Dear God, stop that. It's like you know, it's nails on the chalkboard. They're very attuned to it. I just want to say to you, if, if you're here and you're single, um, one day you could have kids. Listen up, because it could be your kids that we're talking about right here. Okay? If you're, maybe you've already raised your kids. I think there's things we can learn. I think we can help our kids. I think, I think this is something, it's a bigger conversation than just parents, although it is for parents. The elephant of bratty kids. In fact, I came across a blog title that says, your kid's a brat and it's your fault. Your kid's a brat and it's your fault. It's by Kimberly Valzanian. It's the Scary Mommy uh, Parenting site. She says, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but your kid's kind of a brat. Yes, yours. She's whiny, always seems to get whatever she wants. I know you're trying to be a good parent. Your own parents weren't exactly attentive. They didn't know where you were half the time. Your dad, for example, didn't know you played the flute, or he didn't know you were even in the marching band. Your mom had to work a lot, miss most of your field hockey games, and sometimes she was late picking you up after practice because she forgot. But you're not like that. No, no, you're doing things differently. You're doing your best because you want them to be happy. You're overly involved because you want to know what's going on in their lives. You want them to feel special and important. You're never late picking them up. You schedule, you organize, you suggest activities. You hover like a helicopter. You ask a million questions. You want their lives to be awesome and enriched. You don't want them to be disappointed ever. She goes on to say, but you're making mistakes and so am I and now our kids are brats. Here's why. And she lists some things. She says, we negotiate. And she, you know, we've all seen in the grocery store, she talks about the parent who begins to say, I'll buy you that if you behave. And then it goes... All, you know, on and on. The Neg- Negotiation continues. She buys it, and then the kid's doing something else, and then they go back and forth, and, okay, I'll give you one more chance, and then, of course, it turns into several more chances, and bottom line is we negotiate. She says it's a mistake. We clean his room for him. We get so sick of it, we tell him, clean the room. Oh, I will. You're not going to be able to go out with your friends if you don't clean your room. Okay, I will, but then they get to go out with their friends, and they didn't clean the room. You're not going to be able to do that thing this weekend, but they did go, and they still haven't clean the room. Finally, you get sick of it, and you clean the room. Problem is, he gets used to someone cleaning up after him he doesn't think it's a big deal. And she says, do the math. The resolve always equals brat. We carry their backpack for them. Yes, I know it's heavy. Sometimes stuff is heavy. But she has homework to do. When we pick up our kids and proceed to carry everything to the car for them, we're doing too much. We're not pack mules. We are making her or him too uncomfortable. This creates a sense of entitlement. We ask them what they want for dinner. And this one really struck me because uh, I was never asked what I want for dinner. Were you asked what you want for dinner? My question was simply, Mom, what's for dinner? And if she she told me and then I made a face, okay, it was like, well, you don't have to eat it then. See ya. Because that's what's for dinner. And you eat what's for dinner. You know, well, if you don't like it, we'll go out to a restaurant. Are you kidding me? Going out to a restaurant was kind of a big deal. It was special. And I know some of you are looking at me right now. Okay, Sean's going papaw this morning. Back when I was a kid, we never got to eat. It. I know. Yes, I get it. Yes, yes. And you're right. I am going a little papaw. But I think there's a bunch of us in this room who remember when going out to eat was special. It was like a treat. You know. And, and by the way, it, when going out, our parents would never swing through another restaurant to get us what we liked because we didn't like what was at the restaurant. Oh, that would never have happened. But we do that. Another mistake is that their plans, his plans, always trump our plans. Sorry, we can't go, Bobby has a game. And she says, Well, that's okay some of the time. You want to be at your kid's game, you want to be the supportive parent. But other times, the game has to take a backseat to important things in our life. Bobby will do just fine getting a ride. And guess what else? And this is, I think, kind of funny. Bobby will play better because we're not there shouting at them and the referee and the coach, okay? You want to play your kid to play better? Miss a few games. And then, of course, we want them just to be happy. And she goes, newsflash, kids aren't supposed to be happy all the time. It's okay if they don't always get what they want or do what they want or go where they want. If they have to do chores or spend time with their family or go shopping with us, go ahead, expect a few eye rolls and heavy sighs of annoyance. It's okay because everything is not about them and their constant happiness. I mean, think about this. If your child always approves of every parenting move you make, it might be possible that you are exercising childish parenting. Because they're children, they're kids. There should be some things that we do because they're right, because they're important for our family, or for priorities, and that they don't understand and maybe even don't like. Some parents are terrified to experience the displeasure of their kids. Hey, go on down the road a little bit. You'll, you'll get to where you actually like that. It's kind of fun. I'm kidding. <laughs> we undermine each other. This is a Common mistake, you know, the kid asks mom, can I do it? No, dad, yes, or vice versa. Uh, That's a problem, okay? Our kids need to, we need to get on the same page. We fail to give them chores or responsibilities. I love this. She says, if the kid isn't setting the table, clearing the table, loading a dishwasher, raking leaves, or taking the dog out, then the kid should be paying rent. Mm, preach that, sister, that's good, mm. We always make excuses for bad behavior, bad grades, bad stuff. Well, but this, 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 and this. They learn never to take responsibility. We argue with their teachers or, or their coaches. I had a teacher come up to me after the last message and say, oh my gosh, I wish some of my parents could hear this because I'll call them and say something's going on and their first thing is, well, you're messing them up. You're messing my little darling up. And it's like, you know, how do you win in that type of thing? Yeah, your kid's are brat and it's your fault. Uh, and what's funny is sometimes when it comes to that stuff, we think it's cute. When they're little and they do bratty behavior, you ever kind of, because they are, they are, they're adorable. And especially if they're your kid, because they look like us. They're adorable, right? We're adorable. They're adorable. Here's a litmus test for you. If you picture someone else's kid doing it, and it's still adorable, maybe it's adorable. But if you all of a sudden change the faces, and the, it's someone else's kid, and now it's like, oh, no, that's Braddy, Then it's Braddy. Be aware of it. You know, we laugh about what's happening on college campuses and kids' needs for safe space. Oh, I need a safe space because, because I, I'm not used to people telling me things I don't want to hear i got to have a safe space because because people telling me something I disagree with is microaggression and it hurts me. We did this. It starts at home. We've told them they always have to be happy with everything happening and they're the center of the universe. Let me tell you where this leads. Let me tell you where this leads. I want to show you a video in just a moment. The best intro, I think, was from a New York Times op-ed piece. It happened just this last week, last Monday. Christina Hoff Summers, she's one who's going to be speaking in this video in a moment, or trying to speak, is a self-identified feminist. She's a registered Democrat with a Ph.D. in philosophy. And the writer says she has a wicked sense of humor. She's a humorist as well. She's also a woman who says bad things. She's not your typical feminist. She says things like men and women are equal, but there, there are differences between them, and those matter. Or that the gender gap in STEM fields, science, tech, engineering, mathematics, STEM fields, isn't simply the result of sexism. There might be other factors. Or contrary to perceived wisdom, the American school system actually favors girls, not boys. And so many find her views offensive. She, she actually is described as an equity feminist. In other words, or a classical liberal or libertarian feminist. In other words, she suggests the main political role of feminism is to ensure the right against coercive interference is not infringed. She contrasts her brand of feminism, equity feminism with victim feminism or gender feminism, arguing that modern feminist thought often contains an irrational hostility toward men and possesses an inability to take seriously the possibility that the sexes are equal but different. So she has some views that many feminists consider controversial. Well, she was scheduled to speak at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Now, this is a law school. She'd been invited by the Federalist Society to give a talk about feminism. Nine different students' group protested her coming because of her views, her, some of her unconventional views, which many people consider very conventional. But they called her a known fascist. She's a known fascist. And so they protested her. I want you to take a look at this and see what this looked like. Take a look. This is law school.
0: my check. We choose. We choose. To protest. To protest. Male supremacy. Male supremacy. Not give, not give it. Not give it. A platform. A platform. Now look, here's the, here's the professor in trying in to come up and Shuffering shut things,
1: kind to shut them down. Suffering
0: of women. Worldwide. Worldwide.
1: But that doesn't Worldwide. Work. He's not in charge.
0: Microaggression. Microaggressions
1: are real. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you think are done? She tries to inj- interject. interject. So
0: are you done?
1: It's
0: okay. Like, yeah. it's okay what side are you on? Well, friends? we got a song. What side are you on? What side are you on, friends? What side
1: are you on? The rep- so the she represents- gets, does get to talk when they start playing music. Why do so few identify
0: with the name? It's
1: very frustrating.
0: Answer her question if you want engagement. They begin
1: interrupting her I in her talk. You're embarrassing our lawful and our fit body. No. 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 students are speaking up.
0: She asked for engagement. Answer the student's question about what you just said. Listen yes. to this guy. It's fairly
1: common to have the speech and then have the QA and a after, so this is way. not out That's of be That's where it leads. That's kind of brats grown up. Where literally there can't be a conversation. That, that one guy who's sitting there saying, saying you know, it's kind of normal to have the speech and then have a Q&A after. And, and what I just have to keep reminding myself, this is law school. The other students finally start to say something, but it's like, it's like these kids just have, have grown to have this perspective. If someone disagrees with me, that is an injustice disagreeing with me is the definition of injustice. There's another one where this poor guy from India is trying to just say the same thing that this guy said. He's just trying to say, let, let the speaker speak. Let him finish. It was a male speaker. Let him finish his talk and then do Q&A. You can blog about it. I mean, he's just kind of trying to say, please just listen and then comment, and then ask questions. And it's like, I'm sitting, this guy's obviously from India, as a very thick Indian accent. I'm like, people have to come from other places in the world to teach us manners, to show us how to just be polite, and just listen politely, and then ask questions. I mean, that is so baseline. And what's fascinating to me is you have this small group, relatively, of students, totally disrupting, controlling everything, and the much larger group of students actually starting to get fed up with it, but what can they do? bad behavior will win out the day when you're willing to just make a fool of yourself and behave badly and just derail everything that's happening. It's hard without the use of force to actually do anything. And so that's the net result. That's where this kind of thing leads. I mean, it's one of these deals where we recognize raising kids is a scary proposition. I, I, I understand that. You know, there's the questions, what if I, what if I mess them up or Or what if they mess me up? The Bible talks a lot about raising kids. And I want to suggest we pay attention because I think we have to make a decision. Culture is leading us a direction, taking us a direction, and it's not good. It's not good. we got to decide what kind of kids we want to raise. Do we want the the kids screaming at the top of the lungs, the kids interrupting, the kids being rude and obnoxious? Or do we want a kid who maybe be that guy who goes, you know, it's actually fairly common to let the speaker talk and then ask questions?
0: That's Pastor Sean Azaro. You've been listening to Reaching for Real Life Radio. If you'd like to hear this full message in the series, The Elephant in the Family Room, it's available right now on demand at reallife.org. And while you're there, we'd appreciate your feedback. You can leave us a note on our Contact Us page,